This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 1 Introductory Remarks on the Importance of Orthodoxy. Nothing more strangely indicates an enormous and silent evil of modern society than the extraordinary use which is made nowadays of the word orthodox. In former days, the heretic was proud of not being a heretic. It was the kingdoms of the world and the police and the judges who were heretics. He was orthodox. He had no pride in having rebelled against them. They had rebelled against him. The armies with their cruel security, the kings with their cold faces, the decorous processes of state, the reasonable processes of law, all these, like sheep, had gone astray. The man was proud of being orthodox, was proud of being right. If he stood alone in a howling wilderness, he was more than a man, he was a church. He was the center of the universe. It was round him that the stars swung. All the tortures torn out of forgotten hells could not make him admit that he was heretical. But a few modern phrases have made him boast of it. He says with a conscious laugh, I suppose I am very heretical, and looks round for applause. The word heresy not only means no longer being wrong, it practically means being clear-headed and courageous. The word orthodoxy not only no longer means being right, it practically means being wrong. All this can mean one thing, and one thing only. It means that people care less for whether they are philosophically right, for obviously a man ought to confess himself crazy before he confesses himself heretical. The bohemian with the red tie ought to pick himself on his orthodoxy. The dynamiter, laying a bomb, ought to feel that, whatever else he is, at least he is orthodox. It is foolish, generally speaking, for a philosopher to set fire to another philosopher in Smithfield Market because they do not agree in their theory of the universe. That was done very frequently in the last decade of the Middle Ages, and it failed altogether in its object. But there is one thing that is infinitely more absurd and unpractical than burning a man for his philosophy. This is the habit of saying that his philosophy does not matter, and this is done universally in the twentieth century in the decadence of the great revolutionary period. General theories are everywhere condemned. The doctrine of the rights of man is dismissed with the doctrine of the fall of man. Atheism itself is too theological for us today. Revolution itself is too much of a system. Liberty itself is too much of a restraint. We will have no generalizations. Mr. Bernard Shaw has put the view in a perfect epigram. The golden rule is that there is no golden rule. We are more and more to discuss details in art, politics, literature. A man's opinion on tramcars matters, his opinion on Botticelli matters, his opinion on all things does not matter. He may turn over and explore a million objects, 
but he must not find that strange object, the universe, or if he does, he will have a religion and be lost. Everything matters except everything. Examples are scarcely needed of this total levity on the subject of cosmic philosophy. Examples are scarcely needed to show that whatever else we think of as affecting practical affairs, we do not think it matters whether a man is a spiritualist. Let me, however, take a random instance. At any innocent tea-table, we may easily hear a man say, Life is not worth living. We regard it as we regard the statement that it is a fine day. Nobody thinks that it can possibly have any serious effect on the man or on the world. And yet, if that utterance were really believed, the world would stand on its head. Murderers would be given medals for saving men from life. Firemen would be denounced for keeping men from death. Poisons would be used as medicines. Doctors would be called in when people were well. The Royal Humane Society would be rooted out like a horde of assassins. Yet we never speculate as to whether the conversational pessimist will strengthen or disorganize society. For we are convinced that theories do not matter. This was certainly not the idea of those who introduced our freedom. When the old liberals removed the gags from all the heresies, their idea was that religion and philosophical discoveries might thus be made. Their view was that cosmic truth was so important that everyone ought to bear independent testimony. The modern idea is that the cosmic truth is so unimportant that it cannot matter what anyone says. The former freed inquiry as men loose a noble hound. The latter frees inquiry as men fling back into the sea a fish unfit for eating. Never has there been so little discussion about the nature of men as now, when, for the first time, anyone can discuss it. The old restriction meant that only the orthodox were allowed to discuss religion. Modern liberty means that nobody is allowed to discuss it. Good taste the last and vilest of human superstitions, has succeeded in silencing us where all the rest have failed. Sixty years ago it was bad taste to be an avowed atheist. Then came the Bradlaughites, the last religious men, the last men who cared about God, but they could not alter it. It is still bad taste to be an avowed atheist, but their agony has achieved just this that now it is equally bad taste to be an avowed Christian. Emancipation has only locked the saint in the same tower of silence as the heresarch. Then we talk about Lord Anglesey and the weather, and call it the complete liberty of all the creeds. But there are some people, nevertheless, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical important thing about a man is still his view of the universe. We think that, for a landlady, considering a lodger, it is important to know his income, but still more important to know his philosophy. We think that for a general about to fight an enemy, it is important to know the enemy's numbers, but still more important to know the enemy's philosophy. We think the question is not whether the theory of the cosmos affects matters, but whether in the long run anything else affects them. In the fifteenth century, men cross-examined and tormented a man because he preached some immoral attitude. In the nineteenth century, we fettered and flattered Oscar Wilde 
because he preached such an attitude, and then broke his heart in penal servitude, because he carried it out. It may be a question which of the two methods was the more cruel. There can be no kind of question which was the more ludicrous. The age of the Inquisition has not, at least, the disgrace of having produced a society which made an idol of the very same man for preaching the very same things which it made him a convict for practicing. Now in our time, philosophy or religion, our theory that is about ultimate things, has been driven out, more or less simultaneously, from two fields which it used to occupy. General ideals used to dominate literature. They have been driven out by the cry of art for art's sake. General ideals used to dominate politics. They have been driven out by the cry of efficiency, which may be roughly translated as politics for politics' sake. Persistently for the last twenty years, the ideals of order or liberty have dwindled in our books. The ambitions of wit and eloquence have dwindled in our parliaments. Literature has purposely become less political. Politics have purposely become less literary. General theories of the relation of things have thus been extruded from both, and we are in a position to ask, what have we gained or lost by this extrusion? Is literature better? Is politics better? For having discarded the moralist and the philosopher, when everything about a people is for the time growing weak and ineffective, it begins to talk about efficiency. So it is that when a man's body is a wreck, he begins for the first time to talk about health. Vigorous organisms talk not about their processes, but about their aims. There cannot be any better proof of the physical efficiency of a man than that he talks cheerfully of a journey to the end of the world and there cannot be any better proof of the practical efficiency of a nation than that it talks constantly of a journey to the end of the world, a journey to the Judgment Day and the New Jerusalem. There can be no stronger sign of a coarse material health than the tendency to run after high and wild ideals. It is in the first exuberance of infancy that we cry for the moon. None of the strong men in the strong ages would have understood what you meant by working for efficiency. Hildebrand would have said that he was working not for efficiency, but for the Catholic Church. Danton would have said that he was working not for efficiency, but for liberty, equality, and fraternity. Even if the ideal of such men were simply the ideal of kicking a man downstairs, they thought of the end like men, not of their processes like paralytics. They did not say, efficiently elevating my right leg, using, you will notice, the muscles of the thigh and calf, which are in excellent order, I... Their feeling was quite different. They were so filled with the beautiful vision of the man lying flat at the foot of the staircase, that in the ecstasy the rest followed in a flash. In practice, the habit of generalizing and idealizing did not by any means mean worldly weakness. The time of big theories was the time of big results. In the era of sentiment and fine words, at the end of the 18th century, men were really robust and effective. The sentimentalists conquered Napoleon. The cynics could not catch DeWitt. A hundred years ago, our affairs, for good or evil, were wheeled triumphantly by rhetoricians. 
Now our affairs are hopelessly muddled by strong, silent men. And just as this repudiation of big words and big visions has brought forth a race of small men in politics, so it has brought forth a race of small men in the arts. Our modern politicians claim the colossal license of Caesar and the Superman, claim that they are too practical to be pure and too patriotic to be moral, but the upshot of it all is that a mediocrity is Chancellor of the Exchequer. Our new artistic philosophers call for the same moral license, for a freedom to wreck heaven and earth with their energy. But the upshot of it all is that a mediocrity is poet laureate. I do not say that there are no stronger men than these, but will any one say that there are any men stronger than those men of old, who were dominated by their philosophy and steeped in their religion? Whether bondage can be better than freedom may be discussed, but that their bondage came to more than our freedom will be difficult for anyone to deny. The theory of the unmorality of art has established itself firmly in the strictly artistic classes. They are free to produce anything they like. They are free to write a paradise lost in which Satan shall conquer God. They are free to write a divine comedy in which heaven shall be under the floor of hell. And what have they done? Have they produced in their universality anything grander or more beautiful than the things uttered by the fierce Ghibelline Catholic? by the rigid Puritan schoolmaster. We know that they have produced only a few roundels. Milton does not merely beat them at his piety, he beats them at their own irreverence. In all their little books of verse, you will not find a finer defiance of God than Satan's, nor will you find the grandeur of paganism felt as that fiery Christian felt it, who described Ferranta lifting his head as in disdain of hell. And the reason is very obvious. Blasphemy is an artistic effect, because blasphemy depends upon a philosophical conviction. Blasphemy depends upon belief, and is fading with it. If anyone doubts this, let him sit down seriously and try to think blasphemous thoughts about Thor. I think his family will find him, at the end of the day, in a state of some exhaustion. Neither in the world of politics nor that of literature, then, has the rejection of general theories proved a success. It may be that there have been many moonstruck and misleading ideals that have from time to time perplexed mankind, but assuredly there has been no ideal in practice so moonstruck and misleading as the ideal of practicality. Nothing has lost so many opportunities as the opportunism of Lord Rosebery. He is indeed a standing symbol of this epoch, the man who is theoretically a practical man, and practically more unpractical than the theorist. Nothing in this universe is so unwise as that kind of worship of worldly wisdom. A man who is perpetually thinking of whether this race or that race is strong, of whether this cause or that cause is promising, is the man who will never believe in anything long enough to make it succeed. The opportunistic politician is like a man who should abandon billiards because he was beaten at billiards, and abandon golf because he was beaten at golf. There is nothing which is so weak for working purposes 
as this enormous importance attached to immediate victory. There is nothing that fails like success. And having discovered that opportunism does fail, I have been induced to look at it more largely, and in consequence to see that it must fail. I perceive that it is far more practical to begin at the beginning and discuss theories. I see that the men who killed each other about orthodoxy of the homo usian were far more sensible than the people who are quarreling about the Education Act. For the Christian dogmatists were trying to establish a reign of holiness and trying to get defined, first of all, what was really holy. But our modern educationalists are trying to bring about a religious liberty without attempting to settle what is religion or what is liberty. If the old priests forced a statement on mankind, at least they previously took some trouble to make it lucid. It has been left for the modern mobs of Anglicans and nonconformists to persecute for a doctrine without even stating it. For these reasons, and for many more, I, for one, have come to believe in going back to fundamentals. Such is the general idea of this book. I wish to deal with my most distinguished contemporaries, not personally or in merely literary manner, but in relation to the real body of doctrine which they teach. I am not concerned with Mr. Rudyard Kipling as a vivid artist or a vigorous personality. I am concerned with him as a heretic, that is to say, a man whose view of things has the hardihood to differ from mine. I am not concerned with Mr. Bernard Shaw as one of the most brilliant and one of the most honest men alive. I am concerned with him as a heretic, that is to say, a man whose philosophy is quite solid, quite coherent, and quite wrong. I revert to the doctrinal methods of the 13th century, inspired by the general hope of getting something done. Suppose that a great commotion arises in the street about something, let us say a lamppost, which many influential persons desire to pull down. A grey-clad monk, who is the spirit of the Middle Ages, is approached upon the matter and begins to say in the arid matter of the schoolman, let us first of all consider, my brethren, the value of light. If light be in itself good, at this point he is somewhat excusably knocked down. All the people make a rush for the lamppost, the lamppost is down in ten minutes, and they go about congratulating each other on their unmedieval practicality. But as things go on, they do not work out so easily. Some people have pulled down the lamppost because they wanted the electric light, some because they wanted old iron, some because they wanted darkness, because their deeds were evil. Some thought it not enough of a lamppost, some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash municipal machinery, some because they wanted to smash something. And there is war in the night, no man knowing whom he strikes. So gradually and inevitably, today, tomorrow, or the next day, there comes back the conviction that the monk was right after all, and that all depends on what is the philosophy of light. Only what we might have discussed under the gas lamp, we now must discuss in the dark. End of chapter 1